0: amen our text words will be from genesis chapter 39 and we do welcome all visitors here today with us today and we praise the lord especially for our dear sister and her son all the way from oklahoma such a joy and privilege to meet together to worship god including in the hearing of the word let's go to the lord once again in prayer and ask for his blessing upon the preached word let's pray Our Heavenly Father, we worship and honor and glorify You. We praise You for the great salvation that You have bestowed upon us in Christ and that You're working in us by Your Spirit. And we thank You for the means of the preached Word. We thank You for the inspired and infallible record of Your Word that You've given us here in the book of Genesis. And we pray, would You please open this Word to us as Your people that you may help us to grow in our imitation of Christ and our understanding of Christ's salvation of us. And we pray by your holy law, would you please convict sinners and by the grace of the gospel, bring them to Christ by the power of your spirit this very day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've read in Genesis 39 about Joseph's incident with Potiphar's wife and her attempt to seduce him. We're studying and we're considering in this series human happiness, and I want to ask you the question this morning, can a human being be happy without virtue? The answers you'll get today are various. Many people think you can be happy without virtue. They think the opposite is true, that if you're somebody who practices justice and you seek to render to each one his due, then You're going to be miserable. You need to do you. Just you do you and do what you think is best for yourself. That's much of the message that the world tells us. They think that if you practice prudence, which is using all the means necessary to attain the good end. They think if you look ahead and plan ahead, including as a Christian, you're planning your entire life in light of eternity, which is to come. They think you're foolish and they think it's better To live in the moment. You can think about this in the stereotypical Wild West movie Cowboy. He's he's not a man given over to justice. He does what he wants when he wants. And if he has to bully others, if he has to walk over others to get his way, he'll do it. That's the happy man, the world would tell you. He doesn't waste his time with prudence, thinking about the future and, and preparing for it. He lives for the moment. He really lives in the moment. They'll tell you that's how to be happy. This Isn't that what Paul told the Corinthians the mentality was in their day in the world? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If you live seeking to cultivate temperance, that is self-control, the world will tell you, oh, you can't be happy. You need to do what you feel is best. Whatever you feel like doing, whatever you desire to do, do that and you'll be happy. If you're one who practices the cardinal virtue, the moral virtue of fortitude, that is being willing to persevere through difficulty to attain the good end, they'll tell you you're foolish. They'll tell you as a Christian, you're foolish. You're you're making it so difficult on yourself. Do you see see how much more investment you could have if you didn't waste that money in offerings at church? They'll tell you. Do you see how much better a vacation you could take every year if you didn't dump all that money into the church? throughout the course of the year, they think that you're foolish for practicing courage or fortitude and being willing to go through difficulty to attain the good end that's in view. Another way that the world tells you that you can live happily without virtue is just to redefine what virtue is, as we've seen. And in our day today, when people are redefining What a man is, or what a woman is. They're redefining what happiness is. They're basically saying, I am God, and I will define what truth is. Whereas we as Christians know that the truth is, God is God, and let every man... Be a liar. Let every man be shown to be a liar, and we know that God has embedded everything with natures. God has created all things, and everything has a nature, and that thing can only be happy in so far as it is conformed to the created nature wherewith God created it. So, a man who thinks he's a woman by definition cannot be happy because he is not conforming to what God created him to be, which just is the truth and the reality that is in his very nature by which he exists. All reality is God's reality. And if we would be happy as human beings, we must obtain virtue. You could sooner be a fish and be happy without water than you could be a human and be happy without virtue, both moral and theological virtue. You were designed by God this way. You were created this way. And we must obtain this virtue in order to be happy. Virtue is simply the art of living well. We heard it preached a few months ago by Pastor Jones from 2 Peter 1-5, where the Apostle Peter commands us to add to our faith virtue. It's a command given in Scripture. Scripture. And when God speaks of virtue, it's basically moral excellence. This is how Calvin understands it here. He says that this virtue is a life honestly and rightly formed or moral goodness. Puritan William Ames says here about 2 Peter 1.5, when Peter says, add to your faith virtue, he says, all these, the four cardinal virtues that we just saw justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. He says, all these virtues do seem to be prescribed and explained together almost by name in this text. To have moral virtue and theological virtue, theological virtue just is faith, hope, and love, which we'll see later. But to have virtue and for this to mark your life is a necessary mark for every Christian. If there is no moral virtue, there is no redemption of Christ in in you. This, This doesn't mean that we'll be perfect. It doesn't mean that we will not sin. We will sin all the way to glory. But it does mean there will be the presence of virtue and you will have a desire to live this way. It's a mark of every true believer, and we find this in texts such as Titus two eleven to 14 Paul tells us, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, Okay, why did He give Himself for us? Paul tells us, Who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. This text, among many others, reminds us, dear Christian, that, God, uh, that, that Christ died just as much to sanctify you as He did to justify you. Christ did die to justify you. That is, so that you may be declared righteous before God because by union with Christ... God counts you as having died in Christ. Your sins are paid for in Him. In Christ, you're risen with Him. And though you still are sinful in this life, God declares you righteous because you are in Christ who is perfectly righteous. This is the declaration of God about you. In God's courtroom, He pronounces you righteous the moment you trust in Christ. But that's not the end, and that's not the full picture of salvation. Christ also died to sanctify us. Sanctification is God's work in you. In, in justification, He declares you righteous. In sanctification, He makes you righteous. He changes you and transforms you more and more into the image of Christ throughout this life, progressively. Isn't this what the apostle tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6:11 after naming that horrible list of sinners that shall not inherit the kingdom of God but then he says and such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Oh yes, you're declared righteous dear believer. But also you are sanctified and being sanctified, that is, set apart as God's Holy One in Christ to live, zealous for good works, to be saved from every lawless deed, and to live morally upright lives that stands out in stark contrast from this evil world. This is one of the great purposes that Christ died and rose again to redeem you. And if you would obtain true happiness, dear friend, you must obtain virtue. We've mentioned cardinal or moral virtue, and when you are saved, when God regenerates you, He brings you to life by His Spirit. God gives you a spiritual life and energy that you've never had in your life before that enables you... To live in obedience to God's law like you never have before. It's, it's the first time in your life that you've ever truly lived for God's glory. Because whatever moral virtue you can attain before you're saved, everything you do is sinful. Even the very best things you do is sinful because it's not done in faith in Christ for the glory of God. But when you're saved, it's, it's imagine it like this. Imagine a house that is wired for electricity. The wires are running through the house, but it is dead. There is no electricity. You could flip the light switch. The light is never going to come on. That's how you are before you're regenerated, before you're in Christ. You are hardwired for virtue as a human. God designed you this way, and God embedded in nature the natural law so that you know and your conscience bothers you when you don't live in a moral and virtuous way. But you have no power to change yourself. You have no power to cultivate true virtue. And you have no power to give yourself faith to believe on Christ. But the moment that God regenerates you, He grants you spiritual life. God's own spirit lives within you and God grants you the gift of faith and repentance that very moment. It's like the the power is connected to the house from the main grid and all of a sudden the power goes on and what you've never been able to do in your life, now there is a new energy, a new ability to say no to sin, and to say yes to God. That's why there's been a change in your life, dear believer. It's because God has granted this to you, and God has energized and empowered you to live in a morally virtuous way, to have moral virtue, and to cultivate it. And He's granted you the threefold gift of faith, hope, and love theological virtue the moment you're regenerated. And in considering this, this virtue that is necessary for human happiness, I want to consider today Joseph as an example of this. We read in Genesis 39 and how he overcame temptation here, and we'll see also in another passage an example of his theological virtue of faith, hope, and love. And in this, in our passage of Genesis 39... Joseph is an example for us as Christians, an example of moral or cardinal virtue. John Trapp said Joseph was famous for all four cardinal virtues. See here in his one temptation, his fortitude, justice, temperance, and prudence. We know that Joseph lived in a time, now think about this, Joseph had no Bible, The Bible wasn't written yet. The book of Genesis that we're reading from wasn't written yet. Moses wrote it later. Guess how much Scripture Joseph had? Zero. Not one word of Scripture did he have. He had no Bible. He had no Decalogue. There was no such thing as the Ten Commandments written in stone yet. There was no Seventh Commandment. When Potiphar's wife tries to tempt him to commit adultery with her, there was no Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And yet Joseph knew right from wrong. He knew what ought to be done and ought not to be done. And he did it by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit of God working in him and looking unto Jesus Christ who was to come, looking unto him by faith. Joseph overcame. And this reminds us that God has revealed His law, yes, in Scripture, but He's also revealed it in nature, and believers like Joseph were able to live holy lives by the grace of God in obedience to God's law before the law was even written. We also know that He was a man of theological virtue, faith, hope, and love. And Hebrews 11 commends Him for this, "...in the hall of faith, as we will see." Now don't worry, this is not a moralizing sermon. This is not a sermon that says, okay, here's Joseph, you be like Joseph. Do better and try harder to be like Joseph. That's not the point. Rather, the message is the same as what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. I'm exhorting you, dear Christian, imitate Joseph as he imitates Christ. He just is a type of Christ. He's one of the clearest types of Christ in the entire Old Testament. There's there's no recorded sin about Joseph and there's such a striking analogy of series after series of events, how he's betrayed by his own brothers. He goes down into the pit there and sold into slavery. He's put in jail, wrongfully accused, but then at the end, he ends up being Lord over all. Striking analogy to our Lord Jesus in His life in event after event that we see in the life of Joseph. And Francis Turretin reminds us in this, as we see the moral virtue of Joseph, he reminds us that the imitation of Christ lies in the practice of the moral virtues. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, when he's been speaking about the Old Testament Jewish history, he says, now these All these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition or our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul is saying the entire historical account of the Old Testament scriptures were written for our instruction as Christians including the godly examples of believers back then as we see them following Christ and this exhorts us to follow them as they follow Christ. So, with this in mind today, our theme is this You were created for virtue. You were created for virtue. And we'll see it in two basic thoughts. You're created for moral virtue, and you were created for theological virtue. First of all, you were created for moral virtue. This is verses 7 to 10 of Genesis 39. Joseph here faces a three-phase temptation, and this is a foreshadow of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness in his three-phase temptation when he was tempted by Satan himself. In the first phase of this temptation, especially, we see Joseph's response by way of justice, the cardinal virtue of justice, which simply means Rendering to each one his due. Rendering to God his due. And rendering to neighbor what is due to him. Justice is that virtue by which you know what is the good that needs to be attained. What is the good end? What is the good goal? For Joseph in this passage, the good goal that he had in mind was moral virtue and specifically sexual purity. In verses 8-9 to when Potiphar approaches him and she says lie with me in verse 8 notice it says about Joseph but he refused and said so what did he say what was his reason that he gave that he should not commit adultery with her he says says there he said to his master's wife look my master does not know what is with me in the house and has committed all that is that he has to my hand There's none greater in the house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. This is the cardinal virtue of justice. He is saying it would be unjust for me to commit this sin with my master's wife. You're his wife. The only just practice of this enjoyment of man between woman is between husband and wife within the bonds of marriage and joseph is reminding her of this and saying i would be sinning against my neighbor i would be sinning against my master if i committed this sin it would be unjust not only this it would be unjust against god at the end of verse nine he says how can i do this great wickedness and sin against god He realized that to sin against his neighbor by taking his neighbor's wife was to sin against God. This is justice toward God and neighbor. And in this, we see the fulfillment of it in our Lord Jesus Christ, in his temptation, as he was tempted of the devil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And we see specifically this virtue of justice in Matthew 4, 8-10, in the phase of the temptation, where it says, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan was telling our Lord Jesus to do something that would have been unjust. It would be unjust to bow down and worship Satan. And our Lord answers that it is only right to worship God. And when he did this, dear believer... Our Lord Jesus lived in perfect justice His entire life, rendering to God and neighbor all that was their due, something that we have never done, and in this, He was living in the, in the perfect righteousness that we failed to live in. He lived this life in your place, I remind you, dear Christian. All of this active righteousness is credited to your account. And as our Lord Jesus went to the cross, He died to pay for every injustice. Every time that we have not rendered to God what is due Him and rendered to our neighbor what's due to them. Every time we've overstepped the bounds of what is good and just and right. One instance of that deserves eternal damnation. But our Lord Jesus went to the cross to pay for all of our injustices and to credit us with all of His perfect justice or righteousness. when we believe on Him. God calls us to live this way in Christ as the the prophet Micah tells us in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. God calls you, dear Christian, to cultivate this cardinal virtue of justice, rendering to each his due. And he calls you to do this all the way to glory until that day that Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. You're on your way, dear believer, to eternal Glory where there will never be another injustice in yourself or in anyone else. You will be perfectly just, perfectly righteous. There will be no more sin. You'll be fully delivered from the very presence of sin and in hope of this, seek to live now, to put injustice to death and live justly in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Not only does Joseph display virtue of justice in this passage, he also displays the virtue of temperance. In verse 8, when she appealed to him to sleep with her, he say, it says in verse 8, but he refused. He refused. This is The virtue of temperance or self-control this is a fruit of the spirit Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the spirit and he names those nine fruits one of them is temperance or self-control the ability to put your lower appetites in subjection to right reason this is the basic idea and you could think of it like this you remember Daniel's statue I'm thankful to one of our brothers for pointing this out to me last week about this analogy. Daniel's statue with the head of gold and then the chest of bronze, etc. And the lower down the statue it goes, the weaker it goes until the feet it's iron mingled with clay. You could imagine it like this, as Paul tells the People, or, or rather, he tells Titus those that dwell in Crete as that church is being raised up there, and he's talking about the people that live in that region and the vices that they're given over to, and he tells Titus to rebuke them because one of their own, uh, one of their own prophets said, "Cretians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons." Another way to put this in the poetic way that Paul. Said it in the Greek is something like liars, liars, men of Crete, lazy beasts who live to eat. He's telling Titus to rebuke them for this. What, what is the problem? The problem is disordered loves, disordered affections. They do not have their lower appetites subject to right reason. They're not using food and all other created goods as a means to glorify God. Rather, they're using it to fuel their own lusts. You can think about Daniel's statue, the lower down that the command center is on that statue or in you as a human, the more debased we are in sin. If our passions govern us, think about our chest or our heart, our, our anger or whatever emotion we have. If we're controlled by our emotions instead of right reason, this is vice as opposed to virtue. Lower down if we're controlled by our belly like the Cretans. This is also even a lower vice and even lower down if we're controlled by our loins, which was the case with Potiphar's wife, and which becomes the case with unbelievers, the reprobate in Romans 1, on that downward spiral into sodomy. That's the last sin that's named. That's the lowest down levels that they have reached. When we are ruled by our lower appetites... We're given over to vice as opposed to virtue, but God calls us, as he called Joseph, to live in putting our lower appetites in subjection to right reason. This is what temperance is. He refused and said, and then he argues it's not right for my master, it's not right towards God. He is reasoning rightly what is right in this situation. That's what I'll do by the grace of God. That's temperance. Look at all the odds that were against him. She was was his superior. He was living in a pagan culture where this kind of sin was acceptable. He could have gotten away with it, no doubt. He was single and likely lonely when this temptation comes upon him, but yet by the grace of God, he overcomes. As... Paul tells us there as we saw in Titus that Christ has redeemed us to be zealous for good works and to redeem us from every lawless deed. And in this, we see the parallel with the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 1-4 when Satan appeals to his lower appetite. Satan appeals to... Our Lord's belly or His hunger. Our Lord Jesus is just as truly human as we are, yet without sin. He had an appetite. He hungered for food. He had to eat to sustain life. And He knew what it was to hunger. And after fasting, having nothing to eat for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to Him. And It tells us there of Satan that when the tempter came to Him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our Lord Jesus, as the perfect, sinless man, one infinitely greater than Joseph, who was only a faint reflection of Christ, our Lord Jesus had all of his lower appetites in subjection to right reason and in perfect self-control. And he lived this, he did this in your place, dear believer. And God counts you as though you have lived this perfectly temperate, self controlled life. He credits all this righteousness to you. And in his passive obedience, as our Lord Jesus went to the cross, there, as he suffered, he didn't deserve to suffer. We're the ones who committed sins of all kinds of intemperance our entire lives, whether greater or smaller sins, and yet Christ went to the cross there to pay for them all. He's paid for all your intemperance, dear believer. He's paid for all the times you've lacked self-control. paid for. There's no more condemnation in Christ. And now out of the overflow of this, as this very Christ who lived in perfect, sinless self-control, He has gifted you His very Spirit, His own Spirit, to empower you to live this way. He's called you to live this way. The Apostle Peter concerning self-control in 1st Peter 2:11 he says beloved i beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul and i beg you today old oh dear christian to live in temperance in a way that is temperate and self-controlled for the glory of god The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 4 concerning this very sin which is in view, adultery and fornication, which Joseph is being tempted to. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us His Spirit. God has called us to live as Christians self-controlled and temperate lives. Christ has died to pay for our intemperance. He's given us His Spirit to give us the spiritual power and energy, and help that we need, and ability to overcome intemperance. And, old oh, dear believer, as you struggle in this to put intemperance to death and live unto righteousness and cultivate self-control, I remind you that it won't always be this way. You will not always struggle with this. Because, as the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There's coming a day, dear believer, you're going to be perfectly like Christ. You are going to be perfectly temperate and self-controlled for eternity and you'll never again struggle with disordered desires. You'll never struggle again to subject your lower appetites to right reason. You'll be perfectly righteous. This is the day that's before you and now strive by his grace and the power of his spirit as you go toward this day to live as he's called you in Christ by his grace. This is phase one of his temptation. It displays his justice and temperance. Phase two displays especially Joseph's fortitude or courage. Fortitude is the willingness to undergo difficulty, to go through difficulty to attain the good end. The good end, remember, is is moral virtue. He, He wanted to maintain a clear conscience. He wanted to abstain from sexual immorality that is the good end is moral virtue and he's willing to go through difficulty to get there this is fortitude verse 10 tells us so it was as she spoke to joseph day by day he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her this was an ongoing temptation he was being constantly bombarded and bombarded and by the grace of God he did not cave in he remained strong he wouldn't give in and so much more he would prefer to go to jail and be wrongfully accused and spend jail time and possibly be executed than he would to sin he would prefer jail over this sin this reminds us how in our, the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness, remember how Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time and said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. We just read this in the text earlier. What Satan was really offering Christ was a shortcut to the cross. Bypass the cross. Bypass the difficulty. Bypass the suffering and take this shortcut. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. If you just bow down and worship me, it'll be so easy. It'll be so quick. You can have the glory now without the suffering. And Christ rebuked this lie and rejected this lie and He displayed the perfect, courage, and fortitude to go through the sufferings of the cross. As Isaiah says about Him in Isaiah 50, that our Lord set His face like a flint. There was no turning Him back from the cross. He went all the way. He suffered all that the Father had set before Him to suffer. And this same Christ, dear believer, lived and died for you, And in dying, He has paid for all our sinful cowardice, which is the opposite of the virtue of fortitude or courage. He died to pay for every time that we've given up and we've lost hope in in the midst of difficulty. And our Lord Jesus, by His Spirit who lives in You, has given You the power to live this way. And this is why... John tells us in 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Speaking of the world and even Antichrist himself, You've overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. They say that there's a fish that lives at the depths of the ocean. So deep under the ocean waters that if a diver were to try to dive down there, he would be crushed. He would, he would implode from all the pressure, all the weight of that water would crush a man to death. But yet that fish swims and lives there. And the reason that fish can do that is because the pressure inside pushing out is enough to keep that outside weight from crushing that fish. Dear believer, you feel day after day and sometimes more than others. You feel the temptation to sin. You feel the the power of Satan and this world system and your own flesh pressuring you And you might wonder if you're going to be able to make it, if you're going to be able to persevere to the end. And I remind you, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And He who has called you to live in fortitude gives you the fortitude that you need. And by the very Spirit of Christ living in you, there is one who is pushing back and who is helping you to resist and to push against and to reject sin. I encourage you to keep on persevering. Till glory. When Paul said that he's confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. You will persevere to glory because God is preserving you. And now, dear believer, strive in the power of his spirit and by the grace of Christ, strive to persevere even through difficulty and temptation. You might say as a Christian, you might say, well, I just can't control myself. The flesh is so strong. The urges are so, so strong. The temptation is so strong. I just can't control myself. Yes, you can. In yourself, you can't. But you're not in yourself. You're in Christ. You have put off the old man, Adam. You have put on the new man, Christ. You've been baptized into Christ. Christ lives in you by His Spirit and Paul tells us in Colossians 1.29, To this end I also labor, striving according to His working which works in me mightily. You're not striving according to your own power. You're striving according to the very divine power of God, God who lives within you. Yes, you can say no to sin. Yes, you can overcome temptation. And Paul tells us in Romans 6 that sin shall not have dominion over you. Yes, as a Christian, you will sin, but you will not be a slave to sin. It cannot be king over you. Say, well, I I just can't control myself. Well, Paul tells us again in Philippians 2, 12-13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and do for His good pleasure. God is working in you. The omnipotent God, the all-powerful God who spoke all things into existence by the word of His power. This God, the one true God who upholds all things by the word of His power. He is working in you and He calls you, as He is working in you, He calls you, you work, you strive. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as God is working in you. Christ has broken the dominion of sin over you, dear believer, in his death and resurrection. He's given you his spirit to empower you to live this life that he calls you to live and that Joseph lived by the grace of God. Now live by the grace of God, cultivating the cardinal virtue of fortitude, bearing up under difficulty to attain the good end. In the third phase of this temptation, you can see especially Joseph's prudence. The virtue of prudence in verses 11 to 12. Prudence is this. So we, we could, uh, in our modern way of speaking, we often, we're speaking of wisdom. We actually mean prudence. What it is, is you consider the past and what you know in the present and looking to the good end, the good goal in the future, you use all the means to attain to that good end. You, you, by prudence, you think through and you think, how must I attain the good end? And you apply all the best means. Joseph knew what to do. To escape this temptation, it tells us in verse 12 that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me and pay attention. It says, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He did exactly what Paul tells Christians to do. Flee fornication. Now think about this, dear believer. Okay, as as Joseph knew it would be foolish to stay there and try to resist the temptation, he may fall to it. He runs, he flees, he gets out of there as quick as he can. That's the right way to attain the good end of moral purity that he was seeking. Think about this, dear believer. God warns you concerning temptation, and especially this temptation of sexual immorality. God warns you to be more afraid of this sin than you are of the devil. If Satan himself appeared to you breathing fire and boasting against you like in Pilgrim's Progress to take you back to the city of destruction like he did with with Christian, if Satan himself appears to you, Scripture tells us, the Apostle James tells us in James 4-7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He says resist him, fight against him, stand your ground. Same thing in Ephesians 6. Having done all, stand. Stand your ground. But what about if you meet with the temptation of sexual immorality? He does not tell you to resist fornication. Rather, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Do exactly what Joseph did. Run. Get out of there. This is not to make light at all of the dear citizens of Maui who have been suffering in this great fire, but you've seen the footage of people fleeing and running as those flames are leaping up all over the island and the sky's dark with the smoke and people are fleeing for their lives to get away from that fire. Oh, dear Christian... And oh, especially our dear Christian young people who are in the height of the the power of the passions of the flesh and the youth of life. Oh, I plead with you, as the Apostle pleads with you, to flee, to flee sexual immorality. Give no occasion to it. And for us to pray that God would help us to overcome temptation when we are still giving opportunity for the temptation is to mock God to go on a road trip and pray for safety and the brakes are not working on my van, it would be to mock God if I ask God to protect us on the trip. We are to remove every opportunity. There's a dear pastor in one of our churches. He said when a man comes to him and says, Pastor, I've been struggling with pornography. He says, well, do you... You're struggling with it. Do you have a smartphone in your pocket? He says, yes. He says, no, you're not struggling with it. If you're carrying around the opportunity available at any time without any accountability, you're not struggling against it. Remember what Paul said to the Hebrews. You've not yet resisted against sin to the point of shedding blood. You're you're just laying down. If 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 you're not putting away the opportunity for sin, dear believer, you're just laying down and submitting to that sin. You're not fighting against it. I plead with you, old dear Christian young people. Don't give occasion for temptation. Don't be alone together in a setting, in a situation where there's both opportunity and availability for sin that can pressure and that can arise in temptation so suddenly and so powerfully. If we would overcome temptation as Christians, we must use prudence, which is right reason and thinking through what is the best way to put away occasion and opportunity for this sin. And in that context, we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. If we're still providing opportunity for the temptation and praying, deliver me from temptation, we're actually just mocking God. If you're being tempted, oh dear Christian, flee. If you're in sin, oh, get out and repent by the grace of God and use all the means, use prudence to find out all the means, all the ways possible of blocking the opportunity for that sin. And in this, I remind you that there is coming a day, dear believer. Well, never again will you have to flee sin or temptation because there will be no more sin In glory. This is Joseph's life of moral virtue in Christ by the power of the Spirit, by God's grace. This is the life God has called you to live for His glory. And if you would be happy, you must cultivate this virtue, dear believer. And dear unbeliever, You'll never be happy until you are in Christ and He by His Spirit is transforming you to cultivate these virtues. We'll briefly now consider our second point which is Joseph's theological virtue, his display of theological virtue. That is faith, hope, and love. This is in Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis. You remember how that Joseph's brothers betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. They abused him. They robbed him of the best, some of the best years of his life. He was 17 years old when they were jealous of him. He'd done nothing wrong. They were jealous. They sold him away into slavery. They lied to their father, Jacob, and said that an animal killed him. There he went into Egypt, had one suffering after another. And then after all these years, his brothers are dependent on him because there's a worldwide famine and Joseph is the ruler over all of the, all of the food that they've stockpiled. And here comes Joseph's brothers to Egypt to obtain food and then they end up living there and as soon as their father jacob dies, they're scared to death what's joseph going to do now he's so powerful now he could crush all of us he could have all of us put to death if he wanted to and they approach him asking for mercy and when they did in the latter part of verse 17 genesis 50 17 he said it says and joseph wept when they spoke to him you can see his love here the theological virtue of love now faith hope and love are gifted to you the moment you are saved. You have to have this faith even to believe upon Christ. These are the free gifts of God in salvation. And this love that God grants to you, you can see it with Joseph. He he has such a tender heart that he weeps when his brothers say this. He's not calloused by bitterness after all those years of injustice and suffering. Verse 18, Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, verse 19, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You can see his love through his words. He encourages them. He promises them good. He comforts them. Through His words and through His works, He follows through and He does provide for them. This is love to God and love to neighbor. You can see His love to God in that He says, I'm not in the place of God. And then He He takes their injustice, their wrong that they've done against him. They betrayed him. They lied. They ruined his life in a natural way of speaking. And yet, he says, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. He is glorifying God. He loves God. Even when he couldn't understand God's purposes, he still trusted God. And this virtue of love is this, dear believer. It is God's friendship extended to you in Christ. And by that love, by that friendship, you then are able to love others. You're able to love God and your neighbor. This love is when you love God for his own sake. God is an end in himself. God is the ultimate goal of all things. And you love your neighbor for God's sake in context of who God is. Joseph is not loving his brothers based on who they are or what they've done or not done. Oh no, he's loving them through God who has loved him. That love of God that he has tasted. That love that surpasses knowledge. Joseph has the ability to love even His enemies, just as our Lord Jesus Christ called us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, to love those who persecute and revile us. And God has granted you this same love, dear believer. And our Lord Jesus, you can see this love perfectly in Him at the cross when He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, forgiving even the enemies that were putting Him to death, and forgiving all us who were His enemies. And this love will remain in glory once faith is no longer needed, once hope is no longer needed. Faith will turn to sight. We won't be hoping for future glory, we'll be in future glory, but love will remain. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that of these three, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. You can see Joseph's faith and hope in this same chapter, chapter 50, verses 22 to 26. Tells us that Joseph dwelt in Egypt and it came time for him to die. Verse 24 And Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Hebrews 11 speaks about this passage and it says, uh, uh, speaks of the faith of Joseph in Hebrews 11:22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. He had faith to believe God's promise, even though the fulfillment was a long way off. And it wouldn't even happen till after he was dead. He mentioned the departure. God had already said to Abraham that they would live in captivity for 400 years in Egypt, but then he would bring them to the promised land. Joseph believes this that is faith, to believe all that God has said, even when you can't see it. He had hope in that he desired this good promise that God had given, he desired this future. Even though it was a long way off, he, he made commandment concerning his bones. He knew all his flesh would be deteriorated and gone by that time. It'd be so long, all that would be left was his skeleton. And yet he believes God's going to bring him out. And there in Exodus chapter 13, as all the, the men and the women... Possibly two million or more Jewish people with their livestock, their babies, their elderly. They're all making that mighty exodus train. They're all marching out of Egypt. And it tells us there that Moses took the bones of Joseph. This this was nearly 300 years after Joseph's death. Think about this. If one of our particular Baptist forefathers died before our confession was even written and they committed their bones, this is how long ago that would have been in Moses' day. And it says that they took his bones and there as they crossed over the Red Sea and God parts the waters, there go all the people of Israel, but there goes the casket with Joseph's bones to be buried in the land of his people that he believed would happen while he was still alive. And he never saw it in his life. And in hoping this way he was hoping beyond the land to the future resurrection in Christ as his body was committed to the ground in faith and hope of him who was to come this is faith our Lord Jesus displays this faith and this hope even in his dying breath father into your hands I commend my spirit and he breathes his last he trusts his father even unto death and in hebrews 12 he displays this theological virtue of hope for the joy that was set before him he despised the shame of the cross and he endured and now god calls you dear believer to live in this faith and hope and love we saw moral or cardinal virtue the way we grow in that is by cultivating it by habit But you know how we grow in faith, hope, and love? There's one way that we grow in it. One and only one way. Participation in the means of grace and especially corporately as the people of God. The prayers, the preaching, the reading of the Word as we're gathered here today. Participation in the means of grace. This is how you grow in faith and hope and love, dear believer. And it's the only way you grow. And I beg you and I plead with you. God has given you a full bounty of the means of grace here. There's a prayer meeting at 10 a.m. There's public worship at 11 a.m. That we're in now, and there's Sunday school at 2 p.m. And I plead with you, and I beg you, old dear believer, make every effort and commit to be here in all for all the means of grace and participate in all the means of grace, so you can grow in this faith and hope and love. You who've been through military basic training, if they give you three meals a day, what what would it have turned out like if you'd only eaten one of those meals per day during? All those miles of running and all the exercises. You might could have survived, but would you have finished well? If you're terminally ill and the doctor gives you three treatments that you're to take periodically and you only take one of the three, how do you think you would fare, dear believer? Oh, dear Christian, God has given you the means of grace. He has blessed you. I plead with you to participate in those means of grace. And you will grow in faith, hope, and love. And you will be more happy for the glory of God, the more that you grow in these. Till the day that's coming when all of these promises who find their yes and their amen in Christ will be fulfilled in and to you, all of you Christians. I've spoken mostly to God's people today, but for you here today, dear sinner, in seeing these virtues, and seeing the righteousness of Christ reflected in Joseph's life because Christ is living in him by his spirit and Christ's would be coming later to deal with his sins at the cross, to wash him of his sins, and to pay the price necessary for his salvation, but already he's enjoying the benefits of it before Christ comes. Do you see the moral virtue, and especially in our Lord Jesus Christ, and dear friend, in light of this, do you see your own lack of virtue? Do you see how immoral, how what the scripture calls ungodly against God Do you see how stained by sin? Do you see how full of vice and full of wickedness you are, dear sinner? Do you see that not one day, not one moment of one day in your entire life up until now, have you ever lived in true virtue? Your entire life has been nothing but vice, nothing but sin against God. Even the very best things you've ever done are sinful because they've not been done in faith in Christ. Do you see that? And do you see how it renders you guilty and you're condemned and you're on your way to the eternal fires of hell and you deserve to go there just like all of us deserve for our sins? Do you see that, dear sinner? But yet, do you see how righteous and perfect Christ is and how gracious God is that God would take all that righteousness of Christ that He lived and that He did and God would give that to you and credit it to you and treat you like Christ? Do you see how Christ died to pay for every sin? Even the very worst of sins. And the moment that you come to Him, He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This eternal happiness is before you now and God calls you to come and participate. Come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Come now, dear sinner. Amen.